good quotes. John Calvin said this about justification. He said, justification was the main hinge on which salvation turns. Think about that. To be declared righteous, to be made right with God, is the hinge upon which salvation turns. Even Luther said that all other doctrines flow from this doctrine of justification by faith. Now, do you think they're overstating this? I think not. In fact, they're saying that if you are wrong on justification by faith, then you will be wrong in every other area of Christian theology, including salvation. And they're right. In fact, this is proof today. If, I, if we had the time to give all the examples of churches, evangelical churches and denominations that have simply abandoned this truth or maybe redefined justification or redefined faith to their purposes according to their methodology or philosophy or theology, we see that these churches are literally crumbling from within. They're appointing homosexual leaders. They're performing same-sex marriages. They're conning people into health, wealth, and prosperity. In the name of Jesus, if you want to be right with God and be happy and blessed, give us your money. They're proclaiming a light gospel of love where the believer doesn't have to truly repent from sin and commit to Christ. In fact, some of that came right out of my own seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, in the whole lordship debate and non-lordship debate justifying, making excuses why Christians could live carnally and sinfully their entire Christian life. Is that what justification by faith alone means? To be saved by the precious blood of Christ? To be made righteous and then to live like a pagan? They're approving all kinds of liberality and they are becoming a mausoleum. Luther and Calvin did not overstate their position, along with all the other reformers. But it wasn't always this way for Luther. We have to understand that. I want to give you a little bit of historical background just to set the stage. i got a picture up here for you. The picture is worth a thousand words. This was, this was a, a painting that was painted about 300 years after this incident. And as you can see, it's a painting of Luther it's currently in the National Galleries of Scotland. It depicts Luther after passing through really a crisis of faith and questioning and arriving at the doctrine of sola fide. He's here in the library at the, the, at the, uh, the church in Erfurt. And so he arrives at this doctrine of sola fide, this justification by faith alone. You can see the dawn coming in through the latticework, illuminating his face and illuminating the text. In fact, if you look closely up there, you can see a picture of the Pope covering a, a, a picture of Christ on the wall. Sim, the, the painting was symbolizing how, how Luther was fighting against, how the Pope was becoming more important than Jesus. There's some other things that you can see. It's kind of hard to see above Luther's head to the left or to your right. There's a chain on the Bible symbolizing how, how the scriptures had really been locked. And basically, they believed whatever the church told them. And here Luther is going back to Sola Scriptura and what is written on the page of that Bible. Romans 1.17 The just shall live by faith. 
The just shall live by faith. It was a defining moment because it was a defining text. And God used Romans 1.17 to spark the Reformation. See, history tells us that Martin Luther became a monk. Not to learn theology. Luther became a monk to save his very soul. He was serious. He fasted. He, he beat his body, literally, in order to try and subdue his sinful flesh. He was a model monk. He did penance. He, he, he went to confession to the point that his confessors would grow weary of his, they called it, determination. They would tell him, go back to your cell, Luther. Don't come back until you have, have committed a sin that's really worthy of penance. Can you imagine that? He walks away. They're like, what, did Luther forget to pick up his socks? He just need to come and confess it? He didn't wash his hands before eating. He missed a prayer. They made fun of him. Why did he come so often for confession? Because no matter how hard he tried to be right and just by faith, it never measured up. He always fell short. I'd say his conscience was pricked, wouldn't you? In fact, in a letter to the Duke of Saxony, Luther confirmed this by saying this, I quote, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should have carried my mortification even to death by means of my watching my prayers, reading, and other labors. See, the church taught him and everyone else at that time that the only way that, that Luther could satisfy God's demands for righteousness was by doing good works, by participating in the sacraments, the Eucharist, what the Catholics now called Mass, what we call the Lord's Table, by being baptized for the confirmation and penance and last rites and anointing and holy orders and all of the other sacraments. He believed that this literally made him righteous and just before God. But Luther knew his own heart that no matter how hard he tried to keep his vows, to live piously, it was never enough. He understood that. Luther struggled with this because when Luther read Romans 1.17 from the Latin Bible, it confused him. And they were using a Latin translation at that time. And his Latin Bible said those words. It said, the just shall live by faith in Latin. And Luther didn't understand how he could be made right and just by faith. Because he was never faithful enough. And this was in large part to really what was a linguistic trick in the Latin. In fact, the word justification is a legal term used to describe the act whereby a judge declares a person righteous. They are right according to the law, not guilty. It's not condemnation. It's a declaration of really freedom, rightness and righteousness. And see, the word justificare, again, I haven't studied Latin. That's my best guess at what that how to pronounce that. 
But that Latin word for justification, it literally came from two Latin words. One was justice, meaning just or righteous. And the other was facio, meaning to make. Think about that. Righteous, just, to make. You put those two words together, and what do you have? To make just. That was confusing. And at first glance, it's no wonder Luther thought that justification was a process. He thought it was a process whereby a person is made righteous and holy. After all, this made logical sense. Think about it. After all, God cannot declare someone to be righteous unless that person is righteous, right? It's logical. And so he believed that justification was the process through which a person literally became intrinsically holy from the inside out. It became holy. Of course, that's not taught anywhere in the Bible, but it was very clear in his Latin version. And for thousands, or I guess probably a thousand years, the church had taught that. That's how you got right with God. So if that's not what Romans 1.17 actually means, then it's critical for us to study and to find out its true meaning. And tonight I want for us to take a deeper look at Romans 1.17. So if you would turn there with me to Romans 1.17. Now Romans 1.17 is the central theme of the entire book. In fact, when Pastor Ramey begins to teach the book of Romans, that was a prophecy I just made, by the way. <laughs> when Pastor Ramey preaches through the book of Romans, notice the when, confidence, assurance, uh, he's going to get into this, uh, that Romans 1.17 really is the central theme, and it's the text that answers the question, what is justification by faith alone? What does that mean? Or in other words, how can sinful mankind be made righteous before a holy God? And in this text, we will see both the source and the means of righteousness. So let me read Romans. I'm going to start in verse 15, just to give us a little bit of context. Romans 1, 15 to 17, it says this. Paul says, Thus for my part I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So first of all, let's look at the source of righteousness. What is the source of our righteousness? In verse 17, it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What does the it refer to? What do you think? How do you know the answer to that question? Grammatically, you have to go back and figure out where is the noun. What, is, what, are, what are they referring to? In verse 15, or 16, it says, I'm not ashamed of the what? The gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel, for in it, the gospel. And so it refers to the gospel. In fact, if we had time, I could walk you through verses 1 to 17, which is called the prologue of, Romans, of the book of Romans. In many ways, it's kind of like the front porch leading into the home. 
in, in order to properly enter into the home, you have to enter through the porch. And it's the same thing with Romans 1.17. When Pastor Amy preaches this, he's going to cover all of this. Don't worry about it. You're going to get it. And so it's the prologue. But it's the gospel. In verses 1 to 17, it's, it's talking about the gospel. And so in verse 15, Paul says he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Why? For, because, verse 16, he's not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why is he not ashamed of the gospel? We have another for or because. It's the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. For, because. And then he says, in it is the righteousness of God. So it is the gospel. And notice Paul states that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Now, before we get too further into this, it's important to define righteousness. Again, sometimes in these theological messages, we use a lot of these theological terms. And righteousness simply is one of the most important words in the book of Romans. It means literally to be just, to be right. Uh, In fact, righteousness is used in numerous ways in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It can be talking about a straight path or a way. It can be talking about, about weights and balances that are just or right. It can be talking about a person's character. It's a perfect moral status that belongs to God alone. And it means to be perfectly holy, without blemish, without any flaw, and that God will deal with mankind with perfect equity. But notice, what is the source of this righteousness? If that's what righteousness is, where is the source? What did Luther think the source of righteousness was? What do you think? Yeah, faith in and through works. The church had the answer. The church had knowledge. And what they told us is what we did. But notice what the text says. For in it, the righteousness of God. Now, I'm going to get a little grammatical with you here. Grammarians basically understand that that of, that preposition of, is what we call a genitive of origin. Great, Chris. Thank you so much. I'm going to forget that as quickly as possible. What does a genitive of origin mean? It simply means that whatever it's defining, it's the origin or the source. It's the righteousness, you could almost say, sourced from or from God. That's why grammar is important. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. So every time you see that text, you can almost translate it righteousness from God, meaning God is the source, the origin of righteousness. It's important for us to know two things about this righteousness. First, it's what God is, and it's what God has, and therefore gives. So first of all, God is righteous. God is just. He's holy. He's correct. He's right in every respect. In fact, Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. There's our word. All his ways are righteous. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, he's Righteous, he's just. Righteousness and upright is he. And then Jeremiah 9, 24, we know this passage, but let him who boasts, 
boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Again, who is speaking here? God. This is God's self-declaration. I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. God himself says, I am just, I am right, I am am so holy that all of my ways are straight, without sin, without blemish, without flaw. It's powerful. I don't know if you've ever thought to drink from a stream. Uh, Hopefully it's in the mountains somewhere, away from cows and people and such. Have you ever wondered why a stream would be pure enough to drink from? What is the origin of that stream? Albania was full of these springs. Everywhere you go, you'd see water spurting out of a rock, spurting out of the ground, and they just harnessed it. You recognize that the reason why the stream is clear and clean and pure and holy is because of what? The spring, the source is clean. You have to understand something. If you or I, sinners under the the mighty hand of the wrath of God, are ever to receive any kind of righteousness, it is imperative that the source of our righteousness is pure and holy. Amen? Because if the source is tainted, then what will happen downstream? We will be tainted. Because God alone is righteous. He alone is the source of all righteousness. That's what God is. God is righteous. But there's a second aspect about God's righteousness. And, it, and it's God gives righteousness. Because God is righteous, therefore he has righteousness. And because he has righteousness, he gives it. You think, why is it necessary for God to give us his righteousness? What does Romans 3.10 say? There are some who are righteous, some who seek after God. There's a handful. Good job, little buckaroos. Keep going. Is that what it says? Talk about a depressing verse. There are how many righteous? None. How many seek after God? None. What does none mean? Yeah, it, it means zero. There's no grammatical trickery here. None means none. That's you, that's me. And why? Because Romans 3.23 says what? All of us have what? Fallen short, failed, sinned. And you think, well, Chris, I don't know. I, I, I did something good the other day. I mean... Would God look at that as a righteous deed? And then we get to Isaiah 64, 4, which says that all of our righteous deeds are like what? Menstrual cloth. Thanks for that image, Chris. Every time you think you're doing something in and of yourself, your own good works, to please God, to be right with God, to be declared just in God's eyes, God says he looks at that and it's bloody used, filthy. You wouldn't even want to step on it, let alone touch it. On your best day, that's how righteous you are. 
wow, Chris, this is an encouraging message. We love it when you preach. Wouldn't that be despairing if it weren't for the rest of this text? (laughs) But is that not the condition of the person apart from the divine pardon of God? See, in order to find acceptance with a holy and just God who promised to punish sin from the very beginning, when did that happen? In the book of what? The beginning was a hint. Genesis, he promised Adam and Eve, you eat the fruit, you shall surely die. Again, God is a just God. See, we must have a perfect righteousness to find this acceptance. See, God doesn't grade us on a curve. He doesn't compare us to other sinners. Well, you know, there's Kyle, and then there's Chris. Kyle, Chris, well, okay, well, to Kyle. Kyle's better. He's got facial hair. He's more righteous. I talked to Kathy last week. He's doing really well. God's not comparing you and me to others. All it takes is for one sin for you or I to commit, and we are unrighteous, deserving of God's wrath, deserving of judgment leading to hell. How do we know that? Look at the next verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In fact, Romans 1.18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul spends the next couple chapters basically on that theme. You are a wretch. You're a sinner. Nothing you do measures up. You're damned. Can't wait, Ken. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. Because before you can get to the good news, you have to tell them the what? I just want to give you a biblical picture of righteousness. I think sometimes it's hard to wrap our brains around this. Chris, okay, we understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. And I think this this biblical picture, I hope will help us to understand this concept of righteousness a little bit better. I stole this from Steve Lawson. Thank you, Steve. See, the Hebrew word for righteousness is often used in the Old Testament uh, in the marketplace when they were making a purchase. It's, it's, it's the scales, the image of the scales. In fact, in Albania, we had these. If I went to the fruit market and, and I wanted to buy four apples, what would I do? I would go... Uh, in Albanian, I would ask, hey, I want to buy those four apples, and I'd pick them and give them to the, the, the shopkeeper. And what would the shopkeeper do? Have you ever seen the scales? They put the apples on this side, and what happens to the scale? And then what does the shopkeeper do? See, there's a price per pound, and, and he has these little measured weights that, that indicate certain numbers. Like this is one pound. In, the, in Albania, it was kilos. But, you know, we're Americans, and we're right, so we'll use pounds. You know, it's, it's one pound, and so he puts one pound on there, and what does it do? Then he puts one pound and a half. One pound and three quarters, puts another little weight on there. Not quite. One little tiny, little pebble pound. 
What do you have? A righteous transaction. A righteous transaction. Four quarters for a dollar. It's righteous. It's just. In fact, we see this picture in Leviticus 19, uh, 36. The example of God calling Israel to have just or righteous balances and weights. In fact, even in Job 31, 6, Job asked the Lord, he says, let him weigh me with accurate scales. Even Job says, God, weigh me. Try me, put me on your scale and weigh me to see if, if I'm just. I don't think I would ever ask God to do that. See, the gospel says that every one of our lives is placed on the scale. And on the other side, we're not measured against another good Christian. We're not measured about what the world thinks of us or how good a Christian should be or Time Magazine or the church how they define it. You know who goes on the other side of the scale? It's the absolute perfect, majestic holiness of God. And in the moment when that hits the scale, what does it do? I mean, it shoots you up to the moon. You're that unrighteous. It's a scary picture no matter how many good deeds you've done, no matter how many people have, have told you what a good, righteous Christian you are, it, it can never hope to measure up to the weight of God's righteousness and holiness and justice and perfection. Never. We are weighed. We are found wanting. And so we find ourselves in really an impossible situation. Where do you go from there? Answer? Hell. Hell. It's impossible. We can't save ourselves through religion or, or getting baptized. We, we can't save ourselves through good deeds or any other human work. Why? Because the Bible has already told us all of those righteous deeds, all of the works that we might do to try to earn or merit righteousness in the eyes of a just and holy God, to try to measure out that scale. All of it is filthy and dirty. And the only way that we can find acceptance with the righteous God is for the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be given to us. In fact, Luther said this was an alien righteousness, a righteousness that didn't come from within me. It was, it was outside of me. In fact, he said it wasn't a righteousness that even originated on earth. It was a, a righteousness that, that had its source, its origin from heaven. Is that biblical? That's why grammar is so important. Where does righteousness come from? From God. It's an amazing picture. You see, this is why Paul states that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. This word reveal has the idea of, of uncovering or disclosing, kind of like you're ripping the, the cloth off of a beautiful statue or painting and you're revealing it. I guess in modern days we have a reveal. It's like someone had this major, you know, they go in just looking like the ugly duckling. Right? And then they go in there and they fix the hair and they do all this thing and they suck out 20 pounds and, or maybe they put them in a girdle. I don't know. They're like, it's like, wow, you lost 20 pounds. That's amazing. And when they come out for the big reveal, what is it? What do you expect to see on the faces of the people? Not, but what? 
What does the gospel do? What does it do? It reveals the righteousness of God, which at first does what? And then what does that change to when we see where this righteousness comes from and how we can receive this righteousness? That abject terror becomes what? Praise God. It's amazing. And that's what the gospel does for us. It reveals this righteousness of God. Shows us just how sinful we are. Just how incapable of saving ourselves without hope. But then stuns us with the beauty of how we can be saved in the person and work of Christ. You think, well, Chris, well, I mean, like, what does it reveal? What does it reveal? I mean, how can we receive this righteousness? Okay, if, if righteousness is sourced in God and he gives it to us, how do I get it? I mean, you recognize something, the scale illustration that I just used. It doesn't tell us how we got righteous. All it does is tell us whether we are or aren't righteous. It tells us God is righteous. It doesn't tell us how. See, the gospel reveals that the grace of God is our source of justification by which we are made righteous. Can you think of a couple of verses that say that? In fact, I think we, we just heard Ephesians 2 last week, didn't we? For by what are you saved? By grace. For by grace you have been saved. Through what? Faith. Not of yourselves. It's not a work. It's not something you did. It's not something you can boast in. It's by God's grace. In fact, Romans 3.24, it's another passage, just a couple pages over. It says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How are we justified? How are we declared righteous? It's a gift by God's grace. Grace through the redemption which is in Jesus And Ralph talked about that quite a bit last week. I don't need to go too much into detail about that other than to point out that it is of grace. That's why grace is one of the solas. See, the only way for our lives to find acceptance with a holy God in heaven, the only way, is for the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be given to us. We can't add anything. So let's talk a little bit about the righteousness of Christ and, and how this has been accomplished. And there's basically two ways that the righteousness of Christ has been accomplished. Now, when the average Christian thinks about the gospel, do you think they think about the cross primarily? They think about the blood that was shed? They think about the sacrifice? Jesus died in my place. Would would you agree with me? What we're going to see here is that that is actually only half of the equation. Because the righteousness of Christ has been accomplished in two ways. First, by Christ's sinless life. It's not just his death that's important. It's also his sinless life. In fact, most Christians believe they were saved by the death of Jesus. They don't even think about the life of Christ. In fact, Caitlin and I were driving here tonight. I gave her a quiz to see how much she knew. Because, you know, she goes to Master's University. This, this girl should have learned some of the theology by now. And she was holding her own. So that was impressive. There's a couple spots. Yeah. Thankfully, Dad Gray is on a curve. I still love you, sweetie. But she really nailed it. I I was pretty amazed. 
Most Christians believe it's just the death of Christ. But of course, if that were the case, Jesus would have just skipped the whole three, 33 and a half years and gone where? Straight to the cross. Think about that. Why live? Oh, there's the baby. Kill him. Great. Go to heaven. See, Galatians 4.4 states that Jesus was born under what? The law. Why was Jesus born under the law? Because by keeping the law perfectly through a sinless life, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Think about that. The spotless lamb. Why do we call the lamb spotless? Unblemished. Sinless. How could he have fulfilled the law perfectly if he was a sinner like you and me? He couldn't have. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And so God, uh, oh, and in fact, this is why even at his baptism, remember John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus? And John the Baptist says, no, no, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, you have to baptize me. Why? So that he would fulfill all righteousness, even in fulfilling the law of baptism at that time. See, God doesn't simply give us righteousness out of thin air. Bippity boppity righteousness. That'd be cool. Can you imagine having a righteous wand? Okay, who needs a little bit of righteousness? Oh, my kids do. <laughs> they need a little bit of more righteousness. Bippity boppity righteous. That's not how it works. He takes the perfect righteousness of Christ's life of 33.5 years. He takes it. And he credits it to ours. And where the head or the best of Christ was laid upon us, and God literally imputes his righteousness to us. Think of this positive as a credit. We call this the doctrine of imputation, where we receive the righteousness of Christ because of his life. But that's only half, as I said, it's also by Christ's substitutionary death. By Christ's sinless life, he filled the law in our place. And by his substitutionary death, he took our sins upon himself in our place. And Jesus' death on the cross has literally taken away our sins, washed us clean, and healed us. Again, this is the picture of Isaiah 53. Remember some of the, some of the words that are used to describe what happened to Jesus in our place? Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. He was pierced. He was crushed. He bore our sorrows, and by his wounds, we were what? Healed. I don't know about you, but when I saw that, that movie that Mel Gibson made, remember that movie about the life and death of Jesus? That was one of, and again, it was rated R, it was a very graphic picture of the crucifixion of Jesus. And I remember being in that movie theater, watching Jesus being whipped and just weeping. I mean, half the theater had popcorn. They're eating popcorn and drinking, drinking a soda. And then that scene comes along and it's like, uh, it was a graphic. Somebody had to die. He was whipped and beaten. 
unjustly. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Beautiful passages talking about this process where God took all of our sin and put it on Christ so that when he suffered and died, God could be just in saying someone will die. God forgives us our sin by taking the worst of us and placing it on Christ at the cross. And so even in this this picture of how Christ accomplishes this righteousness, it's both and. Positively, through imputation, giving us the righteousness of Christ's perfection. And negatively, subtracting all of our sin and washing us free and putting it on Christ so that there's literally an exchange. In fact, I think probably one of the most practical ways to illustrate this for us, to try to help us understand this, is a balance sheet. How many of you know what a balance sheet is? Adults, okay. I thought I wanted to be an accountant. Uh, Do we have any accountants in here? No, okay, good. I won't offend you what I'm about to say. I wanted to be an accountant. I thought, numbers, great. You know, they make a good living and you get to help people. I did that for a summer. It was like numbers from hell. It was just horrific. I mean, I was like seeing double and numbers and columns. Well, I learned something while I was doing that. You see, a balance sheet has two columns or two pages. And on one side, you have what? You have assets. This is the positive this is what we own. It's, it's our money. It's our possessions. It's, it's everything that we possess. It's an asset. It's positive. It's plus. That's one side. On the other sheet is what? Liability. Everything that, that we owe, all of our responsibilities, all of our debt. And at the end of the day, what are you hoping which one is bigger? The assets or the liability? What do you think, we're an idiot? Of course the assets. This is America, the land of the rich. Wow, that was a pretty good Texan accent, I think. Was that good? Okay, I'm working on it. Without bit, no? Okay, I don't want to offend anybody. So you have this balance sheet. Now think about this spiritually. What do most people typically put in the asset side? What do you add there? Okay, so spiritually speaking, works. I'm a good person. I go to church. I'm a member of church. When the offering plate comes or a secret box in the back, I give. Asset, 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 asset. I come from a long line of Christians. My great, 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 great grandpappy was a Christian. We're all Christians. I was born Christian. Asset. You think Kyle's better than me? Have you seen how good I really am? Asset. We start comparing ourselves. 
I'm not as bad as that person asset. Well, just the other day I was doing asset. And what do we typically put over here on the liability side? You're right, I yelled at my sister the other day. Negative. Liability. You're right, I did eat the last Oreo cookie. Sorry, Ken. Liability. Yeah, you're right. I did look at pornography. Liability. I did slander that other woman with my mouth. Liability. And every person on this earth at some point in their life before Jesus Christ was hoping at the end of their life which side would be greater. Because how does that work? Somehow God, this loving, just, gracious, merciful God, if I can just have more accredited to my account of positive liability or or the assets, if, if God will just look at my life and see how much I've done, how much good I've done and how much I've given, and if that's more than my debt, than than my liability, then what will God do? He'll declare me righteous and I get to go to heaven. In fact, in Luther's day, they said, well, that's probably not going to happen because you guys are a bunch of sinners. So that's why they invented purgatory because that was another place where they would send you to burn off the, all of the, the, the issues in, if, in fact, you did have more debt <laughs> and more liability. Purgatory was a place to burn that out until it got to the point where you had more liability and then the Catholic Church says you go to heaven. You understand how that balance sheet shows this. And maybe you did the same thing. I know I did before I became a Christian. The Bible says this is not true. All of our righteous deeds on the positive side are actually attempts to please God through human righteousness. And that makes God angry, doesn't it? Think about all the names that Jesus called the Pharisees. Snakes, Matthew 3, 7, blind guides in 15, 12. How about this one? This is my favorite. Whitewashed tombs, Matthew 23, 27. What is a whitewashed tomb? If somebody tries to paint their house white, what are they trying to do? They're trying to spruce it up a little bit, make it look pretty on the outside. Jesus says, You're, inside you are all death and bones. On the outside you look beautiful. What were the Pharisees doing? Asset, 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 asset. Look at how good we are. Look at how righteous we are. Debt, debt, debt. Minimize debt. Maximize asset. And what did Jesus say they were? Dead. The exact opposite. You're right. And so think about this. What does God actually do to all of our assets? He takes that whole list, and what does he do? He takes them off the page, and where does he put them? All of my good works, God looks and takes all of those and moves them over to my debt side. So now I'm doubly in debt, doubly damned. Because even the things that I thought I was doing to please God actually make God all the more angry and put me even more under his wrath. 
Does that motivate you to want to share the gospel with your unsaved friends who probably hold some view of that? To help them see this is not going to save you. You'll never be good enough. If God did keep a record of our sins, according to Psalm 133, who could stand? Nobody. No one, not a one. So now, when the books are open without Christ, we have no assets on our spiritual books, and our liabilities are filled with debt that we are incapable of repaying, just like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, leaving us without hope and damned. And if all that happens is God takes away our sin, think about this, we just go from a negative to a neutral. If God just removes our sin, we go from negative to neutral. Is that enough to save us? No. We still don't have righteousness. It just means we don't have the sin. Simple subtraction. We also need a positive righteousness, which is credited to us through the sinless life of Christ. And of course, this is the good news that the gospel reveals to us. Because in Christ, the only positive asset that we have is the sinless life of Jesus and the substitutionary death of Christ has wiped away any negative that we did have. So the life and death of Christ is the basis of our justification. Remember the painting that I showed you earlier? Again, we can put that back up there, Jacob. Thank you. Remember this painting. Now can you understand why Luther was so discouraged? I mean, this is probably him searching. Does he look happy? I think the artist was trying to capture him searching and in despair. Are you getting a sense of this despair that Luther felt? Luther was the righteous of the righteous. He, he was the Paul of the Augustinian monk order that he was a part of. The righteous of the righteous. And all of his pious living and self-discipline, it, it wasn't an asset, it was a liability. Because he knew that no matter how faithful he tried to be, he could never measure up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. He could never be declared just. And you know what God used in Martin Luther's life? It was a deeper study back to the original language. It's a great reminder for us to know our Bibles well. And God showed him that justification was not a reward for good behavior. It wasn't something we could earn for what we do. Rather, justification was a status It wasn't a process. It wasn't something we were cooperating with, which is still what the Roman Catholic Church teaches today, by the way. Faith and sacraments. No, God revealed through this very text that we're studying tonight that justification was a status whereby God declares a person righteous based on the substitutionary death and sinless life of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. It was a declaration made by God according to our status of righteousness in Christ. And in fact, it's very similar to a courtroom when the judge declares a person to be right standing before the law. Well, if the gospel reveals the righteousness from God accomplished by the sinless life and substitutionary death of Christ, the next natural question is, well, how do we get that? How do we receive that? 
And this leads us to our second point, the means of our righteousness, which is faith. Back in Romans 1, 17, it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, in the Greek, this is a little bit of a challenging phrase. There's like five different ways to interpret this. I decided just to give you the one that is the best. So if Pastor Ramey preaches differently here, he's right, I'm wrong, just so you know. But I think the best way to take this from faith to faith, and again, what is faith? Faith is simply, it can be translated trust or belief. It's belief in something, trust in something. I think the best option is this. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God, which is revealed by faith. That's what the first faith is, when it says from faith. He's talking about this revealing of saving faith. Now, the two faith, or the second faith, refers to the ongoing life of faith that the one who believes will continue to live. Let me explain this in another way. From faith points to the initial act of belief. To faith points to the life of faith that flows from that initial act of faith. Did you get that? From faith to faith. In fact, this idea is supported by Paul's use of Habakkuk 2.4, where he says, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's exactly what Habakkuk was saying. The righteous man shall live by faith. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, guess what? That faith will flow out of your life. That's why it says, shall True saving faith in Christ will, it shall, produce a holy, committed life for Christ. It's emphasizing the continuity of faith. Faith doesn't start and stop and start and stop. Is this an important issue in the church today? Absolutely. I got taught by a DTS professor who told me that a 16-year-old could profess faith in Jesus Christ, mentally repent in their heart, six months later reject Christ, become an apostate, which simply means they reject him completely. He is not Christ, he is Lord. Reject Christ and go into the world. And this professor told me that that now now 16 and a half year old was saved. Because faith is something mental that never actually needs to touch our life. You may know someone like that who, who is struggling with their faith. Because that from faith part, they go, well, I I prayed that prayer when I was that old or at that point or that time. It's the to faith part that they struggle with. I think really what Paul is saying here is that once you become a true believer, you will never ever become an unbeliever. In fact, this is where we get that that beautiful doctrine, the, the, the perseverance of saints. That true Christians will endure, will persevere from faith to faith. Again, it's a little bit complicated. Hopefully I made that clear for us. Again, he's talking about about the the righteous man shall live by faith. Live, emphasizing moment by moment, day by day, through the ups and downs, the struggles, the good times, the bad times. All of faith, which will be an active, dynamic, living faith, which is both growing and maturing. Why? Because according to Hebrews 12.2, who is the author and perfecter of our faith? Who are we told to fix our eyes on when we grow weary and lose hope? Running the race that God set before us. Who are we told to fix our gaze on? Jesus Christ. Why? He authored our faith. 
granting it to us, and he perfects it from that point on. In fact, Steve Lawson said this, the faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. Did you get that? Let me say it again. The faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Paul says, as it is written, again, this gospel message is nothing new. That's why Paul is quoting Habakkuk. The same gospel message was in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's there. The righteous man is the one who has believed in Jesus Christ and has received the righteousness of God in Christ. See, faith is not a work. Therefore, something to be attained, as Luther thought. Faith is belief in God. It's the only channel by which sinners receive Christ's righteousness. Hence the term faith alone. There's only one way, one means, one channel, and it is in faith alone, in Christ alone. Again, Romans 3. Turn over to Romans 3, 21 and 22. It says, but now... So I'll give you time to get there. Romans 3, 21 to 22. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith. Where? Where is that faith sourced and rooted in? In Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Romans 5, 17 says, for if by the transgression of the one death reign through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Again, if it's a gift, it's not something you're doing or earning or deserving. It's something that's being granted to you by grace. Righteousness is a gift of God. The gift of righteousness will reign in life. How is righteousness, this gift of God, reigning in our life? It means we're becoming more like Christ, more righteous through the one, Jesus Christ. And even Philippians 3.9, it says, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Righteousness doesn't come through me obeying rules. It says, But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Just really briefly, there's, there's three elements of saving and enduring faith that we have to understand. The first element of saving faith is knowledge. Knowledge. It's not just to believe what the church believes, but what the Word of God says. You know, in the medieval church, they taught something called implicit faith. Believe what the church teaches regardless of knowledge or understanding. That's why they didn't really preach from the Bible. The priest would get up and just share something. They had the only access to the Bible. And so you were called to believe what the priests believe without ever studying it on your own. Just this knowledge. And the church had knowledge. Well, today there's many who know biblical truth without it ever touching their heart or life. How do we know that? Romans 1.18 says... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the what? Do they know the truth? Do they have knowledge? Yes, and what do they do with it? Reject it by pouring more and more sin upon it. In fact, that's the the same thing as in verse 32. Although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They know. Just because we know doesn't mean we have true saving faith. 
Because true faith will be founded and rooted in Jesus Christ as revealed through the active living word of God. So this is faith in something. There's a content and it's focused on the gospel. But it's not just knowledge, it's also assent. And again, these are what the reformers taught. It's also what we here at Lakeside teach. Knowledge is not just enough, it's assent. Another word for assent, we could say belief. It's more than simply knowing or even understanding something is true. It it moves beyond knowledge of the gospel to the point where you actually agree with it. It it moves from the mind to the heart. Again, what does John 3.16 say? Say it. Whosoever what? Believes in him. Belief. It's there, we know it. You know, I had a religious study professor in college, knew the Bible better than me. He used to, I used to try to debate him, and I could never win. He knew the Bible. He agreed with it. He said the Bible is true. Now, imagine my surprise when he said, I am a Buddhist Christian. I didn't know you could be a Buddhist Christian. So is Jesus your Lord or Buddha? Are you following Jesus' way or Buddha's? What book do you follow? Jesus' book? Well, this book, I, I know it. He knew it better than me. And I believe it. And I'm following it. That's what he said. He wasn't a Christian. Because there's a third element of saving enduring faith and its commitment or what we would call trust. Again, what does John 3.36 say? I love this passage. John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise God. He who believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son... What? But I thought we just had to believe. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And all the other passages, First John 2, you say you love me, but you do not obey me. You're a liar. The truth is not in you. I mean, there's so many passages that talk about this. See, this is where the knowledge of the gospel, having traveled from the mind to the heart, produces a yielding of oneself to Christ. It's a faith that's resting on Christ for pardon, mercy, and salvation. This is the type of commitment that Jesus talks about in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone wishes to come and, and follow after me, what must he do? Do the bare minimum at least. I mean, when it's convenient, when you can fit it in your schedule, try a little harder. What does he say? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That sounds hard. It's possible. That's what Christ is calling us to. Commitment. Self-denial. Mortification of the flesh. See, this is the transition from simply identifying as a disciple of Christ in the sense of belonging through belief to the point of committing to the life of a disciple of Christ. And it's the transfer of trust from whatever object I've placed it on, whether it's good works, whether it's a religion, whether it's church or or, or my parents' faith or giving money, whatever it is, I am putting my faith and trust and hope and belief in. It means I take it from that, repent of that, orient it to Christ and say, I know you, I believe you, and I will follow you. I'm committed to you. You think, well, is commitment necessary? James 2.19, what does it say? The demons what? The demons believe and what? Shudder. Not like on Windows shudders. Sorry, Randy. What are we talking about? It's like, wah, terrified. 
Do the demons have knowledge of God? Absolutely. Do they believe in God? The text says they believe in God. They, they know God. They're like, that's true. God is true. In fact, it's that knowledge of God that makes them terrified. How would a demon repent if a demon could repent? Demons can't repent. We know that. How would a demon repent if that was even possible? They have knowledge. They have belief. What do they lack? A willingness to take that truth that's gone from the mind to the heart and reorient themselves from following self and Satan to who? To Christ. In fact, James Boyce says, if you have the first two, all that does is qualify you to be a demon. If all you have is knowledge and belief or assent, you're in good company with the rest of the demon horde. We could make matching t-shirts. Demon horde. Think about that. Sinclair Ferguson said, Deedless faith cannot save Not because works are the ground of justification, but because the lack of works is the evidence of the absence of real faith. So what are the results of this true committed faith? It's obedience. True faith will always produce good works. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. James 2, 14, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The answer, no. Because the righteous man shall live by what? Faith. To be very clear, works do not save us. And even the faith that we exercise at the moment of our salvation is a gift from God. The ability to understand I am a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. Even my ability to repent and say, God, I agree with you. That sin is horrid and wrong. And and I repent of that and I turn from it and I turn to you is all because of God's supernatural work in my heart by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God in the Gospel because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Works do not save us. They don't, but John Murray stated that justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And I think that's what James is really trying to say. Well, in conclusion, the defining moment in Luther's life came from this defining text, which in turn sparked this reformation, when God finally opened Luther's eyes to see this beautiful and wonderful truth, that it was Christ who had paid the full price of his salvation. And in that moment, he placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. See, justification by faith alone means quite simply that the only source of our righteousness is God, accomplished through Christ's sinless life and substitutionary death. And the only way we can be saved is to receive the righteousness of Christ through faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther struggled. He he searched for this truth to set him free He looked at the religion of human effort and empty works. For years he couldn't find it. But guess what? That truth was there all along in the text that we just looked at tonight in Romans 1.17. So tonight I pray that this message will not only encourage you to take this good news to the lost 
who are trying to build up assets and minimize liability so that in the hope that God's love and mercy would allow them in, that we would share the gospel with them. But I also hope that this message would help us to check, have I really placed my faith alone in Jesus Christ as my substitute and as my sinless Savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible opportunity to study Romans 117. Lord God, it was deep and heavy, and some of these concepts are even difficult for us to understand, Lord God. But we pray that your spirit, by the active living truth of your word, would help us to understand these truths, to make them so understandable to us that we would be able to apply them and and even look for ways to, to consider how does justification by faith alone impact the way I spend my money and live my life and Is my saving faith really producing the kind of good deeds that I was created beforehand for? You are sanctifying me for. Is Christ really my only hope, the author and perfecter of my faith? Lord God, thank you so much for Luther's testimony and even his struggle. Lord, this is incredibly assuring to us because we know that there's nothing we could do to earn it or lose it. And we praise you for that assurance that you give us. And at the end of the day, the joy that comes in knowing that I can't mess this up because Jesus did it all. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.